for the scripture reading, would you, would you turn with me to John 19, uh, 19th chapter of John, and we'll read verses 12 down through 30. Twelve through thirty, that section in John nineteen. This morning. Would you stand when you find your place? John nineteen twelve. From then on Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover in about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. And then he delivered him to them to be crucified. And so, that, so they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And therefore the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but said, I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. And now the tunic was without a seam, woven from the top in one piece. And they said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his, to his own home. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. And so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Hmm. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, again, we come uh, for your throne of grace, Lord. Father, we look to you asking that um, you make this, this passage that we've just read and that we're going to consider this morning. Lord, um, open it up to us. 
enlighten our minds that we may grasp insofar as we can the reality that is portrayed here, the greatness of your love and power that is demonstrated here. And, Lord, the impact that this event has on all of history behind and before through eternity. Father, we, we pray that you help us to understand the significance of this sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus, sacrificing himself for our sins. And all that we do, again, we ask that you be honored. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. I was thinking just a minute ago um, about Hebrews 12. In fact, I think I'm going to read a couple of verses there, um, verse or two from Hebrews 12 that came to mind. If you watch the news at all, or you know, and I'm thinking in a couple couple different ways, there, there are different places around the world that Christians suffer. Um, for the faith, suffer as Christians, and uh, in all sincerity, and I'm, I'm not, you know, trying, I'm not exaggerating here, and I, at least not attempting to, um, I, I think it's going to be a short time before we r- realize uh, some of that here in our own country. And, uh, um, and even now, you know, as, because we're used to uh, an amazing uh, amount of freedoms in this country, I've been so blessed. Even now, when 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 you hear of things going on and the you know the possibility of of losing freedoms, or again, even now, not not just uh, potentially, but but we're already um, mindsets are shifting so that what used to be certain cultural norms has kind of flip flopped, and things that were considered to be out of step now considered to be more the norm, and things that were considered to be essentially the norm are now considered to be out of step. So, so we're, not, we're not totally isolated from the idea of suffering in this world anymore. Um, it, it just hasn't really gotten physical yet. Uh, so this is a good passage to keep in mind as we think about that and as we think about the sufferings of Jesus that we're going to consider this morning, and that is... Verse 3, Hebrews 12, 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your own struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And that's certainly true of us. We have not yet resisted to the point of shedding our blood. Um, and as we, um, as I said, probably face that in the future, um, it, it, it will be helpful for us to consider what Jesus endured 
in suffering the hostility of sinners against him. And it'll be helpful for us this morning as we, we look at John 19, because that's exactly what's playing out here. You have the Lord of glory, the spotless Lamb of God, the sinless Son of God, enduring hostility of sinners. And if, if we, we get a, a it's, it's almost no, I'm you know, probably not even good to make a comparison here because it's so far apart, but we get a small taste of this. If, if you've ever been totally in the right, you know, justified, um, and yet accused of something wrong. So, you know, you've been wrongly accused or something like that, and you're just kind of taken back by it, and you think, you know, how, I, you know, I didn't have any bad intentions. I, I wasn't doing anything wrong. How can they, um, you, how can they do that? You know, how can somebody do that? We've all experienced that kind of thing. So there you get a, just a tiny taste of what's happening here where Jesus, as the sinless Son of God, one who has never, ever committed any wrong, is subjected to, not only subject, subjected to hostility, but hostility of wrongdoers. The one who's done no wrong is subjected to the hostility of wrongdoers. So it's just upside down and unjust from a human standpoint what is, what is taking place here. So it's good for us to con consider that. And as I said, it'll be helpful for us too when we are in situations where we're persecuted for right, for doing what is right. Um, I want to just basically divide this up into uh, three parts, this section that Zach just read. John 19, verses 12 through 30. Um, and I'm going to start with the condemnation, the condemnation of Jesus. And what I'm, what I'm getting at here is the accusation that is brought against him. And essentially it is, it is this. Um, it, it is insurrection. Now, the Jews, and we talked about this last week, so I won't go into a lot of detail here, but, but the Jews had to bring a charge like this against Jesus in order to get him crucified by the Roman government. They, he, Jesus had to be crucified in order to fulfill the Scripture. And in order to get that done, things had to play out a certain way. In other words, he, he could commit... The Jews also accused him of blasphemy, which, of course, he didn't commit, but, but that accusation... Uh, could not in this situation carry the death penalty because the Jews did not have the power to execute. Um, so what they could do and what they did do was wrongly accuse him of, of, of uh, contriving an insurrection. You know, he's, he's planning, plotting uh, to, to set himself up as king. Now, if that is the case, then that's a threat to Caesar's rule and the Roman government will, will not tolerate that, and, uh, and he'd be crucified. All right? this, this is what happens. Even though Pilate doesn't buy into it, and again, we talked about that last week, Pilate knows that he's not guilty, he hasn't done anything wrong, but uh, because of the pressure of the Jews and uh, what we, of course, also the threat here uh, in the text that um, they basically told Pilate, look, if you don't do this, you're no friend of Caesar, so, so now that's a, that's a threat against Pilate if he doesn't go through with this. So Jesus gets charged with insurrection. And let me go back to 
uh, again, to verse 12, um, if you, middle of the verse, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So they're saying this man is, is guilty. This, at least this is their claim. This man is guilty of insurrection, and if you don't execute him, then you're showing that you're disloyal to Caesar. Because we all know anybody who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So verse 13 says, When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and uh, in Aramaic, Gabbatha. There's a couple of times in here that Aramaic is mentioned, and I might just point out that that's the, uh, that's the language that they, were, um, that they were speaking. That's the common, uh, common tongue among the, the Hebrew people here. It's actually not Hebrew, but Aramaic. Uh, it, I thought it was interesting a couple of uh, months back. Uh, I, I wish I could remember the name of the town, but there was a there was a Syrian town that was attacked by by the rebels in in the uh, the war that is still going on in Syria over there, and uh, it was pointed out in the news that that little town in Syria was one of three places, and I didn't have a clue about this. I just thought it was fascinating, but one of three places in the world where they still speak this dialect of Aramaic, the same di dialect that Jesus spoke uh, and, and, and the people who, who lived there at, at this time that we're reading about. So I thought it was fascinating. <clears throat> and, of course, they said if, uh, if, you know, if the rebels overthrew this town and very possibly uh, be eliminated and, and then there would only be two places where this language is still spoken today. Uh, but anyway, just, just an interesting side note. So they, they spoke Aramaic, and now it was the day of preparation, verse 14, of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, that is, Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. Now, again, Pilate has already said repeatedly, I find no guilt with this man, um, but now he's, he's, um, he, he's going to uh, wind up giving in to the pressure to crucify him. But he's still trying to antagonize the Jews, so he, he, he flogs Jesus and brings him out. And uh, in, in, in mockery, he says, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. You know what? It's, it's probably hard to understate um, or, or to overstate, rather, the significance of that right there. Uh, in light of the Old Testament, in light of what was required of the, Hebrew, the, the Jews, no king but Caesar. In, in reality, what they were supposed to be confessing is, we have no king but God. And, and that was their ultimate allegiance. I mean, you know, they could have kings under God. They had kings under the Old uh, Testament system that God um, permitted and that God anointed to fulfill that office. But, but they were always seen, like, like the great King David. Uh, we read a psalm by David a moment ago, and, uh, and in others like Solomon. They were always considered to be kings under the rule of God, Yahweh. So in reality, um, you know, we have, it should be we have no king but God. So this is really a, an, an utterance of blasphemy, and it shows... Um, and idolatry, and it shows how far they were willing to go to get Jesus crucified. 
And so verse 16 says, He delivered him over, that is, Pilate delivered him over to, the, uh, to be crucified, probably meaning he delivered him over to the, to the Roman soldiers. Or, I think as Luke puts it, delivered him over to the will of the Jews. But the Roman soldiers would take him here um, to crucify him. So, um, and let me jump ahead just a minute to point out, there was, there was an inscription that winds up being placed on, uh, on the cross in verse 19, reading, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And this, of course, caused, uh, caused um, a stir among the, the Jewish leaders. And they objected and said, Do not write, verse 21, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said I am the king of the Jews. And ironically, and, and we know by the providence of God, Pilate, he refuses to do that. And in verse 22 says, um, stubbornly to the Jews, he says, What I have written, I have written. So, so Jesus is crucified with this inscription. And what they would do was when they crucified criminals was put a, a placard up uh, with an inscription that, that told what they were guilty of. And so this is what he was charged with. This is his condemnation. This is what he was um, um, charged with, being, claiming to be a king. So Pilate puts the inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And partly to mock Jesus, and partly to mock that he, he knew this would, this would uh, cause controversy, more controversy with the Jews. And uh, so it, it was another stat at them. But the irony is that, in fact, it was the truth. <laughs> Hanging on that cross was the Messiah, the King of the Jews. And maybe, maybe too, there's a, a little bit of symbolism here, um, further symbolism. If you look again in verse 20, it says, it was written, latter part of verse 20, it was written, that is the inscription was written in Aramaic, again, the common language that they spoke, in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So Pilate had this inscription, this placard placed there, and in three different languages, the inscription declared Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And may, maybe there's a little bit of symbolism there that he is the king of the Jews and more. In other words, not the Jews only, but all nations, which kind of possibly symbolized there by also being written in Greek and Latin. Latin, incidentally, was the official language of the of the uh, Roman government and therefore the, the military. And Greek was uh, the, the language of the empire left from the, from the days of Alexander the Great. Um, and in his conquering of the world, he, he made sure that, that the, the countries, the, the areas that he, regions that he conquered were, um, were taught Greek culture and Greek language. So Koine Greek, the common Greek became the language of the empire. So it's kind of like English today. Uh, English is considered um, like the, a common trade language in many parts of the world. And, and so whatever native tongue they speak uh, in different parts, um, a, lot of, a lot of times they, they also speak English. and That's the way it was with, with the Koine Greek at this point. So, um, in fact, the region that Jesus is from, Galilee, um, Koine Greek was used commonly, so Jesus was probably bilingual. 
So the trilingual inscription probably, um, again, may contain some, some symbolism as to his kingship over the whole world, all peoples. And now the, cru the crucifixion. The crucifixion. Um, verse 16 says, Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified, and they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross. I, I want to read a, a couple of descriptions to you here. <clears throat> a little bit of what this entailed, um, because I want to look at this with, in two different aspects. Um, first, the, the physical aspect, again, what's entailed with the crucifixion, and then secondly, the, uh, um, the spiritual aspect. I mean, there's, there's, there's something also going on here when Jesus is, is on the cross that, that was unseen. I mean, you had, the, you had the visible suffering that he was enduring, the hostility of sinners against himself, um, but there's something else at work there too that um, if it had not been, we would all all be lost. Uh, but let me, let, me, let me start with the physical aspect here. And uh, the other night, uh, Riley asked a, a great question about uh, the, the beatings here. And I told you I wanted to share something with you then, and I didn't, didn't, have, it, uh, didn't have it with me. But um, this is a little bit of a description, because we're already told once that Jesus was beaten, and then they're going to beat him again uh, just prior to crucifying him as he's taken now. And so uh, I thought this was interesting. And this is coming from uh, Don Carson's commentary on, on the, uh, the Gospel of John. And he's talking about the term flogging because actually there were three different types, three different forms uh, meted out by the Romans. The first one, and uh, this is Latin, you know, so... Uh, I don't know if anybody here speaks Latin, but if I mispronounce it, forgive me, okay? <laughs> it, 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 uh, these actually sound like musical terms to me, but I bet that's not what they are. Fustigatio, uh, you know, like vibrato and that kind of thing. I'm, never mind. But <laughs> Fustigatio. This is a less, remember there are three different forms of beatings here that they used commonly. This one is the, the least severe beating uh, meted out for relatively light offenses such as um, hooliganism uh, and often accompanied by a severe warning. That is probably what, what happened. That's what we were talking about the other night when, when Riley raised the question. That is probably what happened the first time. When, when Pilate was still working to get Jesus freed, he nevertheless took him and, and had him beat it, beaten, and, and it was probably um, what is known uh, of here as the, the fustigatio, the, 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 the least severe beating, uh, which again would come with a severe warning. The second one, a flagellatio, a brutal flogging administered to criminals whose offenses were more serious. All right, so it just the intensity goes up. They want to really make a, um, an example out of them. But then the third one, and this is where we're at in this, in this narrative. This is what is believed to be going on here. The third one is the verberatio. 
which Carson describes as the most terrible scourging of all, and one that was always associated with other punishments, including crucifixion. In this last form, again, the verberatio, the victim was stripped and tied to a post and then beaten by several torturers. Um, in the Roman provinces, they were soldiers. It was beaten by several torturers until they were exhausted, until the torturers were exhausted from beating them, or until their commanding officer called them off. For victims who, like Jesus, were neither Roman citizens nor soldiers, the favored instrument was a whip whose leather thongs were fitted with pieces of bone or lead or other metal. The beatings were so savage that the victims sometimes died. Eyewitnesses records, eyewitness records rather, eyewitness records, records report that such brutal scourgings could leave victims with their bones and entrails exposed. It's a severe beating, and I've, 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 never, um, I've never seen the movie uh, The Passion of Christ, but from what I've been told about it, that's what they were trying to portray there uh, is basically what, what took place during that, that uh, flogging, that beating, verberatio. In addition to that, um, let me give you a kind of a brief description here, uh, also from Don Carson's commentary of uh, crucifixion. He starts by mentioning that, again, that, that beating we just talked about, um, that they, they would administer before crucifying someone, they would administer the verberatio. Um, and then he goes on to say, Each criminal, as part of his punishment, carries his cross on his back. Now, let me just say real quickly, a lot of times today people have these events. I'm, I know of a guy that does these things frequently, with the cross carryings and all that. There's a couple of things <laughs> that seem a little odd about that to me. Um, one is they usually have wheels on the cross, you know, and they're dragging it around, uh, which, uh, uh, you know, that, that's got to make it a little easier. But um, also, you, you, you always see they have the full cross, and that wasn't really the case with the, with the Roman crucifixions. The, the, the upright beam is planted, you know, permanently in the ground. And what they would carry is the, the crossbar, you know, just like... You know, carrying a big plank or something on your shoulders. That's what they would make them carry. And, and they would have to carry the crossbar um, to the place where the, where the upright was standing, outside the city, uh, on the road outside the city. And then, um, after carrying it there, assuming they, uh, they made it, they, they were executed there. So again, he says, each criminal, as part of his punishment, carries his cross on his back. This refers to the cross member, the horizontal bar, um, yeah, the, the horizontal bar. The condemned criminal bore it on his shoulders to the place of execution, where the upright beam of the gibbet was already fastened in the ground. The victim was then made to lie on his back on the ground, where his arms were stretched out and either tied or nailed to, to the, uh, the cross beam. The cross member was hoisted up, and this is after 
um, in Jesus' case, being nailed. Uh, they were either tied or nailed. Um, in, in Jesus' case, nailed. The cross member was then hoisted up along with the victim and fastened to the vertical beam. The victim's feet were tied or nailed to the upright, to which also uh, some was, was attached a piece of wood that served as a kind of seat that partially supported the body's weight. So, so on the upright beam, you've got a little small wooden seat there that the victim could rest their weight on. They could basically sit on as you're hanging uh, and rest your weight on. And then Carson points out, this was designed to increase the agony, not relieve it. Um, and that is why they did that, because when the victim is hanging, <clears throat> you, you, would, you would die of asphyxiation. You can't, you, know, you can't breathe like that. So by putting the little seat on the upright beam, um, the person who is being um, crucified would, would uh, well, it's a combination of things. They could push their, their, their own weight up on their feet, which are, you know, by just pushing up on their feet and get some relief in the chest uh, in, in order so that they could breathe. Or they could s sit on that little piece of wood and that way they could breathe. Uh, and what, what that does, what that's designed to do is keep them alive a lot longer so that they're in agony longer. As Carson said, it's not, it wasn't there to provide any kind of relief. It was there to prolong the agony. And sometimes uh, they would literally hang on the cross for days before they would finally expire. Um, in this case, because uh, a, a Sabbath day was coming on um, and, they, and they did, you know, the Jews didn't want people hanging on the cross on the Sabbath. In this case, the, as you probably as you know, you know, the soldiers go around breaking their legs and that is so they can't push themselves up to get on the seat. You know, and if they break their legs, then they're going to suffocate and die. And, of course, when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. So there's, there's a little bit of a description about the physical aspect. Now, one, I want to point out something here, and this is not to minimize it in any way, because, I mean, it, it's, it's horrific, horrific. And, and the description that I just read and, and what, you know, my own words that I added, they don't come anywhere near describing, to describing the horror of it and the pain that one would endure. But I do want to point this out. Thousands of people suffered that death. Um, it, it was it was a, a common uh, means of execution used by the Romans for capital offenses, such as insurrection. So it wasn't unique in that sense. Uh, I read one report, and I've forgotten the general's name now. But who, who uh, after one attempt of insurrection, crucified 800. Uh, so, so this was something that thousands of criminals uh, went through. What was unique, and by the way, again, I don't want to minimize the physical aspect at all. This is certainly not something I would want to endure. But what was unique 
was what was going on that wasn't visible. So, there's the physical aspect. Jesus is beaten severely and crucified. Hangs on a cross for several hours in agonizing pain before he finally dies. What about the unseen? We, we read in Psalm 22 earlier, uh, remember verse 1 in Psalm 22, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now that's quoted, not, not here in John, but it is quoted in Matthew. Uh, that's why I said Jesus cried out. There in the Psalm it was David writing, but, but Jesus cried out, uh, we're told, in Matthew 27 and also, and I'm, I'm turning now to Mark 15 for, for a minute. Turn there if you want, but um, Mark 15, Mark also records it. Mark 15:33. And when the sixth hour had come, which is probably about noon, um, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So, so for a three-hour period there, Mark records that there was darkness. Now, this is presumably 12 noon to 3 p.m., so this would, you know, be the middle of what we would normally call broad daylight, but it, it, the, the whole land goes dark. Black. So this is a blackout before, you know, before they had power grids and electricity running the house. I mean, this is in some way the, the daylight just being... Um, veiled or, or darkened somehow for three hours. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, Mark says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's a quote from Psalm 22.1, which we, we saw earlier. Or, uh, much of it describes, um, it has to do with Jesus suffering and death. Well, why would he cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Corinthians, Paul says of Jesus, he who knew no sin, that is, he had no experiential knowledge of sin, never committed sin. He who knew no sin became sin. And we've already seen in the Gospel of John that Jesus talks about drinking the cup that the Father gives him. And that's a, a, a euphemism for um, facing God's wrath, a metaphor for facing God's wrath. And you're going to endure the wrath. That is, you, you drink the cup, the cup of God's wrath poured out in this case, poured out in full. And I would argue um, that today, and I won't have time to explain this now, but, but today we're seeing God's wrath poured out. But it's in such a way that a lot of people don't even recognize it, don't even acknowledge it, even though it's happening right in, right in front of our eyes. But it's, it's in measure. And, and God is demonstrating much 
much, much restraint. But there will come a time when the cup is essentially, you know, just dumped out. The full measure, you know, John in Revelation talks about the outpouring of the full measure of God's wrath. That's what I would suggest is going on here. So that when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is because he is experiencing the full outpouring of the wrath of God. Now, we, we talked about um, this a little bit Wednesday night, so if you were here, just bear with me just a minute to kind of recap some of that. Um, th- this is something that I would say nobody has ever, you know, I mentioned a moment ago that thousands of people went through crucifixion. This aspect of it that we're talking about here, nobody has ever experienced. This aspect of the, the, the spiritual suffering that Jesus endured on the cross, nobody has ever suffered, nobody is suffering now, nobody ever will suffer. Why is that? Because he's, he took upon himself the full outpouring of God's wrath that paid in full, that resulted in full payment for the sins of his people. Okay, you say, well, that's the saved. You know, that's, you're, there you're talking about people who are saved. We're, Paul says in Romans 8, there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. So Jesus took our wrath upon Himself, and now we don't have to fear facing the wrath of God. True enough. And praise God. <laughs> praise God for it. But what about the lost? Well, they will face it. They will face God's wrath. But I would suggest that they will never face it in its fullest measure. That's the very reason that they will suffer in hell for eternity. Because the debt can never be paid. That is, if if we take it upon ourselves to pay the debt ourselves, it will never, ever be paid in full. This is, this, is, this is a glorious aspect of the grace of God that for all of those who are in Christ, who trust in Christ, the debt is paid. And it's not partially paid. It's not, well, I've got you paid up for a thousand years. You're good for a thousand years now. Now get your act together because after that, you know, you need to do right. And you're on your own. No, it's not that. It's paid in full. Jesus took the full brunt of God's wrath upon Himself for all of the sins of all of His people. He lays down His life for the sheep. But for the lost, they face enduring the wrath of God themselves and they will never, ever be able to pay it in full. And so they will never, ever know Though what they do know, what they do experience will be, again, horrific, but they will never know the fullness because it will never be paid in full. 
So that's part of it. Jesus is taking upon Himself the full measure of the outpouring of God's wrath. And another part of it is this, and I mean, it, it goes with it. It's not, not separate. And this is something that I think, especially as, as sinners, is really impossible for us to really grasp. I mean, we can talk about it, but impossible for us to really grasp. And that is this that up to this point in all of history and all of eternity, we, you know, we use the term eternity past for lack of a better one, I guess. It's hard for us to talk about eternity too. But for all of eternity up to this point, the cross event, Calvary, Jesus has only known the Father's favor. That's all he's ever experienced. The Father's favor. Now I say that's hard for you and I to fully grasp I mean, because we don't know. We, we've always, at least as long as we've been able to understand, and because we've, we've always been sinners, we were conceived in sin, so as long as we were able to understand, we've always lived with a conscience that condemns us. We, we've never known this experience of only knowing the fullness of the pleasure of God. We've never been able to say, I always do what pleases God. And we've never you know, had the, the Father open up the heavens and say, you know, this is my beloved son or this is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. And we've, we've never known that because we, we've been sinners from the get-go and we know what condemnation is like, but we don't know what it's like to only deserve good from God. And we've had a lot of experience with, with receiving good from God, but it's grace. We don't deserve it. We've never known what it's like to only deserve good from God. We know what it's like to only deserve punishment from God. So here's the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the eternal Word, Lagos. All He has ever known is perfect unity with the Father. All He has ever known is a perfect relationship of love with the Father. John, in this very Gospel, begins by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and that word with there is the idea of face to face. He existed from all eternity face to face with God in, in His presence. Remember the term we learned a while back from R.C. Sproul, one of the, the, the study that we did? Coram Deo. In the face of God. That's what John is saying. Jesus, the eternal Word, was in the face of God, face to face with Him from all eternity. And He was God. So there was perfect unity, perfect harmony, perfect love relationship. But now, here on the cross at Calvary, He has taken our sin as His own. Remember what I said a moment ago? You and I 
what our experience has been is the knowledge of condemnation, experiential knowledge of condemnation. Our experience has, has been that we only deserve God's wrath. Well, here our sin, our unrighteousness was put to his account. So he who knew no sin became sin. He took our sin upon himself as his own to bear it and to bear the punishment for it. And even to bear it, and again, this is hard for us to grasp because we know nothing about this experientially, but for the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, the Holy Lord, the One who is light and in whom is no darkness, to take sin upon Himself, to bear sin. He despises sin. As holy, He cannot tolerate sin. And if you could think of, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to make suggestions here. I'll leave it to your own imagination. But if if you could think of the most despicable thing you can imagine in your mind to have to deal with, to have placed upon you something that you would find just utterly repulsive, that would make you want to vomit. in disgust, then again, we might get just a little tiny picture of what Jesus had to deal with here. In suffering, the hostility of sinners against Himself, the Holy One, and in bearing the sin of sinners as His own. Possibly, possibly even some of those that he was suffering the hostility from. Maybe, maybe they, some of them later repented and came to faith. I mean, we don't know, but it's possible. Regardless, all of us had a hand in his crucifixion. And even that sin, even that sin, he took on himself and took the punishment for it. And so now, for the first time in all of eternity, Jesus knows experientially the displeasure of the Father. A lot of times people portray that. In fact, there's a song we do. It's a great song. Um, How Deep the Father's Love. 
has a line that says the father turns his face away. A lot of times people portray it that way. I think, you know, technically I think that's incorrect, but it's probably a good way to portray it just to communicate the holiness of God and that he has no toleration for sin. So we see the physical. I mean, those people that were there that day, they witnessed it. And, and we, we have recorded for us here eyewitness accounts. But nobody could see what was going on in the unseen realm. But isn't it, isn't it amazing that even though all that was happening in another realm, that it was so catastrophic that it had effects in the physical realm. The lights went out. I mean, the lights went out for three hours. And there was an earthquake. And the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. And people even got up out of the grave and walked around the city of Jerusalem. <laughs> I mean, we, we won't, well, we, we may never know the, full, the fullness of it, but we won't really understand well what all took place there until we get to the other side. As Jesus bore the wrath that you and I deserve. One final thing here, and I know I'm out of time, so I'll try to make it quick. And we'll try to pick up the loose ends tonight. Verse 30, and this is the final point, the completion. When Jesus had received the sour wine, remember he just said in verse 28, I thirst. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In English, that's a three-word phrase. It is finished. In the Greek, it is one word. Tetelestai. It is finished. It is completed. It's, it's a fuller expression than just to say finished. But the idea there in, in, in this context is that he has accomplished all that he came to do. In the first chapter of Matthew, Mary's told, you'll have a son and you'll call him Jesus, for he will or shall save his people from their sins. And as we've been talking about, all of that had to play out a certain way. Jesus had to live a perfectly righteous life, earning righteousness for you and I as He stood as our representative. And He had to die, as we've talked about in the last couple of weeks. He had to die a certain way, namely the death of crucifixion. And many more smaller details, some of them covered here in the passage we just read, all had to play out exactly as God planned 
And what Jesus is saying here is mission accomplished. I have done what the Father gave me to do. I have accomplished His will. I have completed the task which was to bring many sons to glory and bring the Father glory by bringing many sons to glory. See, our sin had to be paid for. Righteousness, our righteousness had to be earned humanly by a human being. And death had to be conquered. And what Jesus is saying here is, it is done. In its fullness, it's completed, mission accomplished. It's done. So Paul says in Philippians 2, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbly accepted and fulfilled the Father's will and accomplished our salvation. It's finished. It's complete. It's complete. If there was something that you could add to it, I would suggest it. <laughs> for, for myself and for you. Get it done, right? You know, get her done. But we definitely want to spend eternity with the Lord, right? But there's nothing you can add to it. It's done. It's complete. He didn't need my help. And He didn't need your help. It's finished. It's finished. Would you stand, please? Brother Carl, would you mind leading us in a word of prayer? We'll dismiss.